0: Father, we believe that this book is the God-breathed, inspired Word. We believe that You handed this down to us through the prophets. We believe, Father, that You preserved this from ancient times until now. We believe not only the historical and the geographical and the geological and the archaeological evidence for this, but we, we come to You in faith, accepting that this is Your Word, as You intended. And we desire to know you better through it, and Jesus, to see you in it, that we might draw near to you, deepen not only the understanding of our minds, but the faith, Lord, of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, as you teach us, Holy Spirit, amen. Well, as we begin chapter 8, the people of Israel were becoming so accustomed to the dark that they were blind to the looming shadow. Of the Assyrian threat that was spreading across the land. They literally had trouble seeing it, especially those in southern Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, perhaps was a little more aware because of the threat, and they were, you know, connecting with the Aramaeans, and they were trying to make alliances with other nations that they could ward off Assyria. But even so, across the land, from Israel in the north to Judah in the south, they were just so used to the dark that when the dark began, to invade they weren't ready for it the geopolitical discernment of the kings was dim at best it was growing more and more faint primarily because of the deepening darkness spiritually among the people and one does affect the other spiritual things do affect politics and we might not want to admit that we might want to say that that one candidate or another what they believe spiritually what they believe religiously it doesn't really matter it does matter It makes a difference how they start every single day. It makes a difference if they're praying to God or not. It makes a difference if they're aware of the Lord and His working and His moving. And this land into which Isaiah was born and across which Isaiah is prophesying, this was a tough place to be a prophet. Man, I look at what Isaiah went through and I think, Lord, I have it easy. I just walk down to the barn and teach Your Word. (laughs) I don't face the kinds of things, or have yet to, really, face the types of things that Isaiah had to face. It was a tough place for him to be a prophet, but it was the right place. Isaiah was there at the right time. Because, listen, because what a people in darkness need more than anything else is to see a great light. And so Isaiah comes proclaiming the light, proclaiming truth, proclaiming salvation, proclaiming redemption... Proclaiming opportunity for people to come back to the Lord. And it was a good time, a needed time. As we open our Bibles to Isaiah 8 tonight, we come into the darkness. Now, it's very early on in what we mentioned last week, what I said was called the book of Emmanuel. The book of Emmanuel, within the larger scroll of Isaiah, the book of Emmanuel is chapter 7 through 12. I'm going to get you a new alarm, Roberta. We're just going to get a new one. That thing just loves to go off every week, doesn't it?
1: It's been doing it long enough. Has it? All right, then. I can't can't figure out how I can do it from my backyard, and it's way down the driveway, and the whole house is there
0: i just throw a brick. That's kind of what I would do. Alright, so, we're in the book of Emmanuel. Five chapters, chapter 7 through 12. And it's called the book of Emmanuel because it's all about Emmanuel. We're early on in this, but even for the condensing darkness and the ominous warnings, there remains in the book of Emmanuel, there remains from the prophet Isaiah, a glimmering hope. In fact, a generation after Isaiah, as Jeremiah the prophet came onto the scene, when things even looked more bleak, more impossible, when salvation seemed further away, Jeremiah said the following, Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 8, he said, O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, or like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night? Why are you like a man dismayed, like a mighty man? Who cannot save? Yet you are in our midst, O Lord. And we are called by your name. Do not forsake us. This is remarkable. The relationship Jeremiah had with God, that Isaiah had with the Lord, that the prophets had. A very open and honest relationship. And Jeremiah says, where are you? Why does it seem like you are powerless to do anything in this land in this time? He wondered aloud why the hope of Israel was allowing so much hopelessness. Where are you, God, in my distress? Why does it seem like you're just passing through? Why do you seem powerless to save? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever wondered that? I know people have, I know people do. And I know I have. Where are you, Lord? If you're God, why? Seems to be a question on a lot of people's lips. Jeremiah asked it. You ever wonder in the course of your life or the distress why God seems absent? Listen. Even before finishing his cry of distress, Jeremiah realizes the truth that goes beyond all circumstances, all immediate difficulties. He called out to Israel's only hope, the hope of Israel, who is our only hope as well. And what he recognized, even in his distress call, was the immediacy of Emmanuel that should make a difference in our thinking the immediacy of Emmanuel but, but I've sought God's presence for a long time seek some more
1: Amen.
0: because He is God with us but I pray for divine intervention and it hasn't come pray some more He's doing something hey I don't claim to understand why God allows certain things to happen I don't claim to understand why sometimes you just it's just frustrating because you're not getting the answer you're hoping for or you so desire. When people cry out, you don't understand my pain, my answer is you're right, I don't. But He does. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, for every hurt you've ever felt, you have not felt what it was like to hang on the cross under the sin of the entire world. So He knows. Why isn't He acting? I don't know. He knows, and He is doing something, just as we see with Israel. What is required of you and of me today, what the Lord requests of us, is exactly what was required of Israel 700 years before Jesus came, 2,700 years ago. And that is simply trust in the hope of Israel. Just faith. I've been praying for like a week, and He hasn't answered me. Really? try 700 years but God answers God has a plan and He is at work and in the immediacy of Emmanuel we can proclaim we can recognize even for my pain God is here right now even when it seems so dark even when I find myself despairing which happens especially in this world I look at my little children and I think I've got to raise them here Where's just going from bad to worse? Yeah. Where are you? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us right here right now. And long before Emmanuel came in the flesh, darkness settled heavily on the land. Long before despair and distress and discouragement became the norm. And Isaiah warned that it was coming, and that's where we're at at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, Isaiah writes, Take for yourself a large tablet, and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, or literally, hasten to spoil, hurry to plunder. Hasten to spoil, hurry to plunder. Write that on a tablet, the Lord says to Isaiah. And I will make to myself, I'll take to myself, faithful witnesses for testimony. Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah. The Lord tells Isaiah to write. Hasten to spoil. Hurry to plunder. A stern warning, I'll explain in a few minutes. Write it on a large tablet. This is the first run, by the way, I believe, of the iPad. Right here. Large tablet, write it out there. The Hebrew word here is gileon, a tablet, a gileon. It was either a vellum or papyrus scroll. That was one use of the word. But more likely in this case, it was a wooden tablet covered with wax. And into the wax, softened by the heat of the sun, they would take a bone or a wood or a stone or sometimes a metal stylus. We know that because of the word used where he says, write it in ordinary letters. Well, the phrase ordinary letters is literally a common stylus. Use a stylus and write this. And so you would press into that wax, the warm wax on the wood. You would press whatever message you wanted to write and let it dry and it would dry and harden. And the message would be secure. Truly from uh, an early, it's an early form of today's iPad. Only the difference is you didn't delete the message. You couldn't send it off to be saved in an iCloud account. It was there, once written, it remains your homepage, there was no other wallpaper, that was it, and it was there for all to see. The Lord goes on and lines up two witnesses for this very important message. Uriah, who was an apparently influential high priest in the day, and A guy named Zechariah, who we don't know a whole lot about, there's been some guesses who this guy is, but the bottom line is these two men are notable, well-known figures in Judah, probably officials, a priest and an official. As required by law, God says, I want two witnesses for this. What do you mean as required by law? I want you to write this on the tablet and I'm going to call out two witnesses to take a look at this. Why? Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 tells us on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, listen, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The law commanded there be two witnesses for a death sentence and gang, that's an indication of impending doom right here. I'm going to get two witnesses for what you're writing down. Hasten to spoil. Hurry to plunder. Write it down, Isaiah. But these two men didn't just witness the signing of a death certificate. They witnessed the signing of a birth certificate for a child who was not yet conceived. Not even conceived. What are you talking about? Look at verse 3. So I approached, Isaiah says, the prophetess, that's his wife, And she conceived and gave birth to a son. Now, something interesting about the prophets, you will find with all of the prophets, especially as we get further into their lives and and these men, as we roll down through the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, that the Lord uses them in very personal and tangible ways. uses aspects of their own personal lives to get His message across. In this case, He gives a message And he says, now I want you to go have a son because that son is going to bear this message. He uses Isaiah's whole entire family. He uses Isaiah's personal life. And you know what? The same is true today. The same is true. The Lord would request your personal life to get his message across. It's not just about something we preach. It's something we are called to live. That's why we should be different as believers in Jesus Christ. Because it's not just the words coming out of our mouth. It's the actions of our bodies. It's the intentions of our hearts. It's everything about who we are. God gets personal with us that he might take us personally and use us in the world to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's no different than the prophets. And we've gotten so good in our culture of compartmentalizing things. I have my church life. That's where I'm spiritual. I'm then I have my business life where I do what I need to do to get the job done, whether it's spiritual or not. I have my family life, which I don't want to cross over too much into my spiritual life, because there are things that, you know, my family likes to do that probably we wouldn't do with the church crowd. And the next thing you know, we've got these divided up lives and it's totally bogus. God says, Let's be real. Let's be authentic. I want you to live what you say you believe, or don't say you believe it. Just make a choice here. 1st Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 Paul said our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake he says don't just listen to what we preach look at what we did when we were there 1st Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8 Paul says having so fond an affection for you we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of god but also our lives We gave our lives to you. And in that giving, you learn the gospel, you see the gospel. That was Paul's attitude. Now, the prophet goes into the prophetess, approaches her, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And some have tried to connect that, the birth of Isaiah's second son, with the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. The one we looked at on Sunday, or or I guess it was a week ago, the sign of Emmanuel. The sign of Emmanuel, a virgin will be with child and she will bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. And someone said, oh, well this is is the connection. Here it is right here. Well, there are two obvious problems with this. Number one, Isaiah's wife, the prophetess, was not a virgin. This was their second son. Okay, so the virgin concept is out. But the other problem with it is the second son of Isaiah was not named as a promise of Emmanuel God with us, he was named as a pledge of invasion into the land. For his name, as you probably recall, because we've mentioned it before, his name means, hasten to spoil, hurry to plunder. The Lord said to me, verse 3, middle of the verse, name him Macher Shalal Hashbaz. Which means, again, hasten to spoil, hurry to plunder. Hasten to spoil, hurry to plunder. This was a soldier's chant of victory on the battlefield. When it became clear that the enemy was being routed, soldiers in Isaiah's day would actually shout this out, Hasten to spoil, hurry to plunder. It was their way of saying, We will, we will rock you. As they chase down the enemy, as they run them down, Come on, guys, let's go. Hasten to spoil, hurry to plunder. But if you were the one being routed, This was a terrifying thing to hear. Here they come. They're after us, they're on our heels. Get the wives and children, get them out, because they are hastening to spoil. And they are hurrying to plunder. Verse four for before the boy knows how to cry out, My mother or my father my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of. Assyria. Now the prophet is in deep water because he's just said something is guaranteed to happen. So it better happen or he's out of a job. That was the standard God gave of a prophet prophesies something and it doesn't come true. He's not a prophet. Don't listen to him. And so Isaiah says, here's what's coming before this second son of mine is old enough to say, Dad, Mom... Something's going to happen here, keep your eyes open, hasten to spoil, hurry to plunder. And this prophecy was literally fulfilled as Assyria began flooding into the region like a torrent. 732 B.C., first they took out Damascus in the area of the Arameans. And then they spoiled Israel all the way down to Samaria and the final annihilation there in 722 B.C. From this point all the way through chapter 39 of the book of Isaiah, Assyria is the main enemy. They are the primary uh, menace. They're the ones that Isaiah mentions, says, they're coming after you. And he's beginning to talk, or will begin to talk, more about Judah, the southern kingdom now, even than Israel. The people in Judah are going to watch Israel wiped out by the Assyrians. And Isaiah called it. He called it out ahead of time by the power of the Lord. Verse 5. Again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people... Notice he doesn't say my people. These people. And he's talking here about northern Israel. As much as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloah and rejoiced in Rezin, the son of Remaliah... Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory, and it will rise up over its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through, and it will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. There is an amazing, contrasting picture here that God paints between the gentle waters of Shiloh and the mighty, rushing, raging Euphrates River. The gentle waters of Shiloh. You probably are familiar with these. these. These waters form a pool from a spring on the side of Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem. A peaceful pool, a quiet and a calm pool. And northern Israel had already rejected these quiet waters because they're in Jerusalem, the capital. They said, no, that's not going to be our capital. We'll make our capital in Samaria. We'll be our own country as they divided off and broke away. And so now northern Israel, looking to Aram for help rather than to the Lord, is rejecting Jerusalem, is rejecting the peace, the calm of these waters of Shiloah. The waters of Shiloh in the New Testament, the same spring, fed into what's called the pool of Siloam. It's the same pool that, that Jesus sent the man who was born blind. He said, go wash in the, in the waters of Siloam, John chapter 9. And the man who was born blind went and washed and came back seeing. And Jesus performed a great miracle there. And this man saw for the first time. But the contrast of these gentle waters of Shiloh there in Jerusalem, again, are the raging torrent of the Euphrates. The Euphrates bordered Assyria. And so the Lord used that as a picture of the Assyrian army flooding across the land. But this is a dual prophecy. It was fulfilled immediately in the days of Isaiah. It was fulfilled again in the days of Jesus Christ. These people... Have rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloah. Shiloah. The pool of Siloam. It means some of you Bible students might remember this. Siloam means sent one. The pool of the sent one. Who is the sent one but Jesus Christ? Jesus being the sent one. And ultimately, the rejection of Shiloh, the rejection of the sent one, would allow the flood of Rome to cross the land and wipe out the Jewish people and drive them from their land in A.D. 70. It's always that way. Not only was it fulfilled in Isaiah's day and then fulfilled again in Jesus' day, but it's fulfilled every time someone rejects the waters of Shiloh. Every time someone rejects the sent one, what they do is they lift any possibility of covering of protection against the flood of the enemy. The enemy who would come flooding in. Think about this. Go back to Isaiah's sons. God is marvelous here. Who was born first? You may recall his name is Shir Yashub. Shir Yashub, whose name means a remnant shall return. He was the firstborn. He was the first message from the Lord. A remnant shall return, and then a the second born. The second born hastened to spoil, hurried to pray. So, what's the point? So, the point is the overture of mercy precedes the omen of judgment. He offers mercy first, he declares mercy first. The promise of grace comes before the portent of wrath. God says, first, I want to give you my grace. I want you to be saved. I want a remnant to return. I want there to be redemption and salvation. That's what I want for you. But you need to know, secondly, wrath is coming. God always goes mercy first. He always has the root of grace first. Not only does judgment never come as an unfair, surprising, or unexpected blow, but it's always preceded by overtures of mercy. And this is how God works. Why? Because that's His utmost desire. And understand this, even in those times where the world seems dark, where we seem distressed and despairing and we're wondering where God is, understand His primary desire for you is your salvation. It's your eternity. That's what He wants most. And that's something else to kind of fit into that scenario when life is hard and dark and we're not understanding it and we're hurting and we we don't know even how to get to the next day to recognize even if this life stinks every moment of every day for the rest of your life, guess what? Eternity won't. Because that's what He is preparing you for. That's what He wants for you, for me. And He's going to do whatever it takes in this life to make sure your heart is ready for that one. The only thing He won't do is strip away your choice in the matter. He'll leave that to you. He'll let you decide that. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. Or Isaiah 16, verse 5. He says, a throne will be even be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David moreover he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness but note this, yes he will seek justice yes he will be prompt in righteousness but first, first a throne will be established in grace Mm -hmm. because God first portrays, gives out, offers his grace and then comes judgment maybe that's why in verse 8 God the Father is speaking to God the Son Look at this again. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will even reach to the neck. That means right up to the base of Jerusalem. Even reach to the neck. And it will spread its wings and will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. (laughs) This is one of those, you know, kind of makes your brain go, what? Spirit of Christ is prophesying through Isaiah and speaks something back to Emmanuel, who is Christ. God talking to God. And He says, they're going to fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Why is the Father saying this to the Son? Because this is Emmanuel's land. He doesn't say, it's going to fill the breadth of your land, O Israel. It's going to fill the breadth of your land, O Judah. He says, O Emmanuel. Why? Leviticus 25, verse 23, God says, the land is mine. I was asked one time several years ago, Is Israel the land or the people? And I said, well, the land is called the land of Israel, but Israel is the people, right? And yet, people mistake the land of Israel to belong to Israel. Now, I need you to stay with me on this because I very much, and you know this, support the Jewish state. And I very much support the people being in the land because God gave it to them. However, it is His land... And it is his to do with as he sees fit and as he pleases. Joel chapter 2 verse 18 says, The Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. And that's what everyone from the United Nations to the Palestinian Authority to the Israeli Knesset to every American president since 1948 does not understand. That's right. That this is not a man's land. This is not man's to divide. This is not man's to destroy. This is not even man's to defend. Which is part of the problem that was going on in Isaiah's day. The people in northern Israel were trying to defend their land at all costs, even if it means going to other nations like the pagan Aramaeans to help them. The people in Judah were going around to the Assyrians trying to make an alliance with mighty Assyria, a pagan nation, to help them. And Isaiah says, don't go to any of these people. Just go to the Lord. That's right. Just go to your God. He'll defend you. No. (laughs) We need alliances with people with skin on. Don't ask me to go to God. And that was the problem. And this is what Isaiah is preaching about. This is Emmanuel's land. And Joel chapter 3, verse 2 says very clearly. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Why do you stand so strong for the nation of Israel today, Rick? Because God gave it to them, and it's His to do with as He pleases. The judgment Joel talks about for the division of the land is going to be executed in this world by Emmanuel Himself, God with us, in the person of Jesus Christ when He comes back. But going on in chapter 8, verse 9, Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. Give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves and be shattered. The word shattered is hot. In the Hebrew it means dismayed or terrified or broken. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered devise a plan but it will be thwarted state a proposal but it will not stand for God is with us or literally right there Emmanuel the name is spoken twice in this chapter your plans are not going to stand only the plans of Emmanuel all the plans all the defenses all the procedures and preparations of man will fail only Emmanuel matters. Which is why when we're making our plans, we need to start with Him. Mm-hmm. We recognize Him first. Say, Emmanuel, Jesus with me, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? How would you have me respond? Because I know your plans are perfect and mine get real messy. As I said a few weeks ago, better to be messianic than just messy. Okay? His plans... And gang, that goes for the whole church. The whole church in the world. It goes for this fellowship. It goes for each individual ministry going on in this fellowship. It goes for our personal lives. Emmanuel matters. Not me. Not any of us individually. And not what we think needs to happen. It's what he sees, what he wants to do. Only Emmanuel. Only Jesus. So don't get sidelined by other agendas in this world. Keep the agenda, His agenda. Verse 11. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Word on the street at this time was that a conspiracy was underfoot in the land. There's treachery going on. This word conspiracy is kesher. In the Hebrew it means a treasonous alliance. And the political spin masters were spreading this word about someone. The target of the mudslingers was Isaiah himself. They were targeting Isaiah. He was saying, don't trust any man. Don't rely on Assyria to save you. Don't rely on Aram to save you. Fear the Lord. You need not fear any man. This was the message of Isaiah, and so the Spinmeisters of the day were calling out his words as treasonous. He's treacherous. Of course, Isaiah is saying, don't trust Assyria. He's probably in league with Ephraim, you know, or the Aramaeans. That's why he doesn't want us to trust Assyria down here in Judah. Suspicion and paranoia. These things are not of the Lord. Now. Step out of history and back into our personal life. Suspicion and paranoia, these things are not of the Lord. Whether it's at your job, the bosses are in the office and I know they're talking about me. I just know they're talking about me. That's not of the Lord. In your personal relationships. Yeah, I saw that guy at church. And I know he was saying something about me. <laughs> Suspicion, paranoia. These things are not of the Lord. He says to Isaiah, as I believe he would say to you and to me, don't think like that. Don't think like them. Don't fear what they fear. There's two kinds of fear in the world. There's fear of the Lord and fear of man. Fear of man will mess you up. Fear of the Lord will save your life. Job understood this all the way back in his day. Job 28.28. He said to man, the Lord said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. and to depart from evil, that's understanding. David got it. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. And of course, Solomon picked it up from his dad. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, And throughout the book, if you may recall, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, there's a lot of things to fear in this world. A lot of things to fear. How many of you recall back at the turn of the millennium, not so long ago, it's been a decade since Y2K. Oh no! What if the computer's all shut down? And I remember at the time thinking... Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Wouldn't that be fun? We'd all go back to farming, you know, working with our hands. (laughs) Didn't happen. A few years ago, I had a friend come to me and say, you know what? If you're into investing, I've got the perfect place to put your money. Well, where's that? The euro. You want to invest in the euro because it's going to go gangbusters. Boy, I'm glad I didn't do that. Not that I invest anyway, but I'm glad that I didn't. Look at the euro today. People right now are saying, invest in gold. It will remain firm. It will remain sound. I say invest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Oh, that is so foolish. Isaiah, how can you tell us? Just trust in the Lord. See, that's the point. Our flesh has a pull on us that says we trust you Lord, but we're gonna invest here. Really? Do you really trust me? Rick, are you saying we shouldn't invest? I'm saying make sure your primary investment is in the Lord. What you do with your money is between you and the Lord. But what you do with your heart, it better be a prime investment in Jesus Christ. Because He's not gonna fail you. What do we Christians fear the most? fear the culture wars. You know, removal of manger scenes, the threats from atheistic groups like the one going after that town in Texas I talked about a couple Sundays back. The placing of atheist banners on the sides of buses. Oh no, it says there is no God. Does that really hurt your faith? We worry about things. I do. I'm really kind of speaking for myself here. These things come up and I go, Oh no! Cheryl knows, she lives with it all the time. Oh no, did you see this? And she says, Yeah, God's, uh, God's got it. And I'm like, Pastor's wife, gotta have all the faith, you know. <laughs> How about the movement to redefine marriage for homosexuals? You fear that one? Now, let me, let me pause. In fact, if you have a pen, you need to take it out and write this down. I don't care if you're taking notes or not. You need to write this down. If you don't have a pen, get it from somebody. Write it on your hand if you have to. Right now, a bill is about to be brought on the floor down in Olympia. It's going to come out the 1st of January. There are seven senators who are waffling, who might be swayed against this bill even coming onto the floor. And the senator for our district uh, is a Democrat, Mary Margaret Hagen. Uh, I don't know if you say the name that right, Haugen. Uh, she's, again, one of seven senators who could make or break this bill even coming onto the floor. It is a bill to redefine marriage to, to include same-sex couples in Washington State. I want to encourage you to make a phone call. It's very easy. I did it this last week. All you have to do is call 1-800-562-6000. 1-800-562-6000. You can call Monday through Friday 8 to 4 or uh, Saturday and Sunday 9 to 3. And all you have to do is leave a message. They're very nice. It's not combative at all. Leave a message. You They'll ask for your name and your address and your phone number. And uh, then they'll say, what message do you have? And you just say, in essence, please tell Senator Haugen I am opposed to redefining marriage. I think marriage should be between a man and a woman. And the woman very nicely said to me, oh, okay, Well, I'll make sure that message gets to her. Do you have anything else? And I said, nope, that's it. If you can send that on. And uh, what they're doing right now is they are tallying phone calls. And what I'm told is Senator Haugen is going to go political. I don't know her personally, but she's looking at the tally. And if the tally is more against than for, then she'll vote that direction. Call them. Now, Rick, aren't you saying we're not supposed to fear? No, we're not supposed to fear. But take a stand. For crying out loud, stand for what's right. You know, let's do the right thing, but don't do it with fear. And even if the bill comes onto the floor in Washington, and even if Washington becomes a state that allows or redefines marriage and undermines it, don't be afraid. Dear people, don't be afraid. God is still on the throne, and Emmanuel is still with us. And He will accomplish His, pers- his purpose. Amen. He's going to get it done. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.14, "...even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed." And he says, quote, Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. He quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, what we just read. Peter quotes Isaiah a lot, by the way. Peter goes on to say, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And fear the Lord, don't fear man. Stand for what is right. Take a stand. Again, that phone number. (laughs) 1-800-562-6000. And if you call it, you'll be doing something this holiday season that, that can make a difference. So I encourage you in that. Don't fear what they fear. Verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And He shall be your fear and He shall be your dread. Oh, we're supposed to dread God? Absolutely. Hey, listen, I know we just came out of the Song of Songs. And and that's great. I want to be embraced by Jesus. I want to be in a romantic love relationship with Jesus Christ. However, I also need to fear my God. Even a little sense of healthy dread is not a bad thing. To stop and pause every now and then and say, He is God. He is the mighty one. He is awesome. And I'm going to be on His side. That's that's where I choose to stand. Then He shall become a sanctuary. Now check that out. Watch that progression. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then He shall become a sanctuary. When you respect Him for who He is, when you fear Him rightly, when you see Him in His grandeur and greatness and glory, then you recognize no one can save me like He can. No one can protect me like God can. So He's my sanctuary. But I come there through understanding, which comes wisdom by the fear of the Lord. But to both the houses of Israel, watch this, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Literally, gang, to both the houses of Israel, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm we're about to get into what I could call the prophecy of the stone. Isaiah mentions it here. He's going to mention it again in chapter 28, verse 16. The prophecy of the stone. Follow this through. Think this through. To both the houses of Israel a stone to strike, a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, and they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles an offense. Rock of stumbling, stone of offense. Jesus is the stone of stumbling. He is the rock of offense. It's Him. By the way, the cornerstone of Solomon's temple was cut from a quarry and shaped and formed on a stony hillside that later bore the name of Golgotha. Isaiah 28.16 says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes will not be disturbed. The cornerstone of the temple was carved at Golgotha.
1: Hmm.
0: Amazing. The cornerstone of our salvation, was also carved at Golgotha. Carved as the nails went into His hands and His feet. Carved as the spear pierced His side. As the crown of thorns pierced His brow. Our stone, our rock. Offensive to the world often. A stumbling block for those who don't believe. But He was cut at Golgotha. And for the Apostle Peter, Isaiah's prophecy of the stone is absolutely huge. He he develops a whole teaching about it. In fact, keep your finger here and go to First Peter, or the very end of the Bible. First Peter, chapter two. First Peter, chapter two. I like Ray's way of finding a book in the Bible. You go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, First Peter. That's how you get there. Or if you want to start in the New Testament, that's fine. Matthew, Mark, Luke, First Peter. Okay. That's where it is. First Peter chapter 2 verse 4. Coming to him Peter writes, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so he forms this teaching and it's marvelous he says for this is contained in scripture and he quotes Isaiah 28:16 behold i lay in zion a choice stone a precious cornerstone and he who believes in him will not be disturbed or disappointed this precious value peter says in verse 7 this precious value then is for you who believe but for those who disbelieve and then he quotes psalm 118 verse 22 The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And, verse 8, Peter says, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah 8.14 For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Peter says this is why the things are the way they are in Israel. But Peter wasn't talking about Isaiah's day. Peter was talking about his own day. And Peter, as a a Jew, but as a leader in the early church, in the early days, he said, this is why things are like this in Israel. This is why we are a people under heavy oppression by Rome. This was prior to A.D. 70, very close. It would happen any time. This is why things are so bad. Because Jesus is the stone of stumbling. Jesus is the rock of offense that Isaiah the prophet prophesied 700 years ago, Peter says. 2700 years ago for us Peter works out this whole thing he is impressed he is amazed he is stuck by this idea of Jesus as the cornerstone of Jesus as the stone of a fence of the rock that causes stumbling why is it that Peter is so interested in this stone idea <laughs> any guesses that was his name Rocky that's what Jesus called him remember they're at Caesarea Philippi and it's in that great statement of faith that Peter makes you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus says to him in Matthew 16-18 I say to you that you are Petros pebble and upon this rock Petra I will build my church he would not build his church on the pebble on Peter as the first pope he would build his church on the rock of faith in Christ Jesus, the rock who would cause stumbling, the rock who would be an offense. Which is why even today, Christianity is offensive in our culture. It is. People don't like it. It bugs them. You Christians, so uptight. Why don't you just let gay people marry and be done with it? Why don't you just take the manger scene and put it in your living room? Why does it have to be in the public square? Why don't you guys just knock it off? Stone of stumbling. Rock of offense. And Peter really took this personally. But check it out. Peter, listen to what he says. Look look again at at verse 5. Rick, are we studying Isaiah or are we studying Peter? Yes! He says, you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means we're chips off the old block. It means where He is the stone, we are little stones. We are the pebbles. We are stones of Christ being built together into a spiritual house. He's talking about a temple here. The spiritual house is a picture of the temple being built together, a temple from which worship and praise and sacrifice and offering goes up. That's, that's us. And so it makes sense that it's hard for Christians to get along sometimes. What? We're a spiritual house. We are stones, gang. But right now in this world, I've said before, we're in the quarry. We're being brought out of the quarry and we're being smashed together and pushed in and shaped and formed and made into a spiritual house. And sometimes we get a little chipped. Sometimes a little ticked off, you know? A little frustrated. There's hammering, there's rubbing, there's irritation, there's straining, there's there's sweat, there's struggles because we're living stones being formed into a spiritual house. And so the next time a brother or sister in Christ kind of rubs you the wrong way, look at them and say... That's a spiritual stone, and God is using him, God is using her to form me, to fit me better into this house. And yes, it ticks me off, but that's okay, because we're a spiritual house together. We're being formed together. And it would not surprise me in the least that the person that you are most frustrated by is going to be right next to you in the temple. Isn't it marvelous? He is the stone, and we are, because of Him, we are becoming living stones like Jesus built into a spiritual house. It's wonderful. The chief cornerstone of this house being Emmanuel Himself. Back to Isaiah chapter 8. Verse 16 says, Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among My disciples. This is now Isaiah talking. Okay? bind up this testimony. He's had this great prophecy. He's laid it out there. He's, he's written on the tablet. You know, He's locked the screen of the iPad, set it aside, and now He's saying, bind this testimony. Seal the law among My disciples. This is the only passage in all of Isaiah where He alludes to the possibility that He had disciples. He doesn't really talk about it anywhere else. He'll later say, open the ear of... My ear is the ear of a disciple, but that's, that's a different context than he's talking about, actually, about Jesus there. But Isaiah here mentions his disciples, and I was thinking about this. I guess it's possible he had disciples around him, as rabbis would do, as prophets sometimes had students who learned from them and walked with them. It's also possible the disciples he's talking about here are Shir and Mahir, his two boys, his two sons. In any case, Isaiah prays that the Word would be bound and sealed in their hearts. What a great prayer.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. You know, we need to be praying that for each other. That the Word be bound and secured in our hearts, sealed. That we don't walk out of here and go, Oh, there's another teaching for another day. No, that we have it sealed into who we are. That it becomes part of our language. It's a great prayer to pray if you're discipling someone. Parents, it's a great prayer to pray for your children that the Word be bound and sealed in their hearts. You know, pray the Word of God. Do that. You don't have to come up with all kinds of words, but listen to Les pray sometime. He really doesn't make up stuff, he mostly prays the Word. And let that be a lesson to you that that we have this entire book that we can pray back to the Father. Borrow from it. Use it. Pray these words to the Lord that the testimony, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. It's wonderful. Verse 17, And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. The face that was at that time in hiding was the face of Emmanuel. He was hiding the face of Jesus at this point. The people couldn't see it. They weren't looking for him is why they couldn't see the possibility of this Mashiach coming, Emmanuel, the face of Jesus, hidden. And Isaiah says here precisely what Peter explained about Isaiah and the other prophets in another place. Where Peter said in 1 Peter 1.10, "...the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries." seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And that's what Isaiah is saying. I, I will look eagerly for Him. His face is hidden. I'm not sure what, at what time or, or in what way this Emmanuel that I'm prophesying, I'm not sure when He's going to come. I don't know what He looks like. But I'm looking for Him. I'm going to search I want to know. That's what Isaiah is saying about himself. And you know, I love what we're doing right now. We are doing the exact same thing right now, aren't we? We gather together, we open the Word, and we make careful searches and inquiries about the past sufferings of Jesus, about the present work of Jesus, and about the future glory of Jesus Christ. That's what Isaiah was about. That's what we're up to here and now. Verse 18. He says... Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for the signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And there is something really cool in this verse related to Christ that I'm going to tell you about at the 8 o'clock service on Christmas Eve. So you can come back and hear it then. As the chapter winds down one of those little things to kind of bait you to come back. And let me just be honest, if you're so pathetic that one verse is the whole reason you're going to come on Christmas Eve, you need to be here Christmas Eve. (laughs) As the chapter winds down, the darkness deepens. We actually see these glimmers of light in Emmanuel, but we get to the end of chapter 8, and there's a spiritual darkness into which the people of both Israel and Judah were sinking fast. In fact, they were plunging headfirst into this darkness. And listen, as Isaiah literally pleads with the people, proclaiming the only hope they have, the only glimmer of hope, which I would call the dawn in the darkness. Verse 19, when you, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Now the people should have known better. But this is what they were doing. They were consulting the mediums and the spiritists. They were going after other forms. They were asking the dead. They were involved in necromancy and witchcraft and pagan uh, teaching and, and pagan activity and pagan offerings. And Isaiah says, what are you doing? You know better than this. Leviticus 1931, their own law said, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You don't need to go to some dead person. You don't need to try and summon up a ghost or a spirit or some other presence. I'm the Lord. Why would you do that? Even if there were ghosts and I don't believe in that by the way, but maybe that's another teaching for now. I believe it's just demons. Who are acting as. Yeah, but I saw Uncle Fred. Yeah, demons are really good at disguising themselves and probably looked a lot like Uncle Fred. Why do we think that we need to go to these spiritual realms when the Lord God Himself, Creator of all things, including all things spiritual, says you can come to me? I say this to my children sometimes. Why do you go to your friends? You can come to me. I've been through this. They haven't. Why are you talking to your brother? He's an idiot. Come talk to me.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm, of course, just giving an example. and I would not say that to my own children.
1: <laughs>
0: Leviticus 20, verse 6, he says, As for the person who turns to the medium, to the spiritist, to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person, and I will cut him off from among my people. You don't want to turn to me? Then you won't be one of mine. He says in Leviticus 20, verse 27, Now a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. What do you think? Is God serious about this? Mm -hmm. Well, that was Old Testament law. Do you think God's changed His mind about that? Mediums. The word medium in the Hebrew is obot. And it means, listen to this, interesting, it means familiar spirits. So He says... Why? When they say to you, consult the familiar spirits. Why? Why are you doing that? The, the word for um, spiritus is yidonim, which means a knower, a knower. So, familiar spirits. Ask yourself, what are they familiar with? A knower. What do they know? This should tell us something about the darkness in the spiritual realm, the demonic activity that they are familiar. Guess what? They're familiar with what's going on in your life. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so, when Uncle Fred passed away, and suddenly I thought I saw Uncle Fred, he came and talked to me. Well, if there was an actual spiritual event that took place there, I would say the familiar spirit who knew exactly what was happening in your life knew you wanted to see Uncle Fred. Mm -hmm. Knew. And so, led you down that darker path. Or the knowers... The eudonim. What do they know? They know about us. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that to make you paranoid. (laughs) You're a child of God if you believe in Jesus Christ. They know about us though. And they use the knowledge for deception. In their book, Fast Facts on False Teachings. A great book to get a hold of and just have in your library. Fast Facts on False Teachings by Carlson and Decker. They say the following. Some 50 to 60 million Americans are involved in some form of the occult today. Mm -hmm. Over 50 million Americans read their horoscopes every morning. Any of you do that? Don't raise your hand. Let me just tell you, if you're reading a horoscope, even for fun, it is a foolish, stupid thing to do. And I'm not calling you stupid personally, I'm calling the behavior stupid. What are you doing? You can go to the Lord. Mm -hmm. But you're going to go to a horoscope? Well, I'm a Virgo and that means I don't care what that means. (laughs) It means nothing. It means deception. He says... These can be found, obviously, in virtually every newspaper across the country. People are involved with fortune-telling, tarot cards, palm reading, numerology, and people openly engage in witchcraft, Satanism, Spiritism, and New Age channeling. And we're supposed to be an enlightened culture? An enlightened people walking in darkness. That was the problem in Isaiah's day. They should have been an enlightened people. They were choosing to walk in the dark. So, what's the answer? What is the answer in that day or in the present age? Verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. No wonder things were dark in Israel. Now listen, don't miss this. Isaiah says, to the law, Torah. first 5 books of Moses. To the law, to the testimony, the commandments of Moses. It says, run to the word of God. Be in the Word of God. If you want to see things clearly, don't adjust to the darkness, to the law, to the testimony. Speak according to this word. Now listen to me, it is the Hebrew Scriptures he's talking about. The New Testament wasn't written yet. It hadn't happened. Isaiah says, if you want to be clear minded, clear thinking, if you want to walk in the dawn, in the brightness, with your eyes wide open, speak according to this word. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons I believe there's more deception in the church today than at any other time is because people are not speaking according to the whole word of God. Even churches who say, hey, we're a New Testament church. Hey, that's well and good. But speak according to the whole word. Do you realize how much weight there is behind understanding the Hebrew Scriptures along with the New Testament? We just looked at Peter and his letter. And he drew everything out of the teaching of the stone off the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you know that, and if you see the context of the prophecy of Isaiah, and then you read Peter talking about it, wow, it's a whole new ballgame. It's a totally different thing. To the law and to the testimony. That is, the Hebrew Scriptures. And by the way, the Hebrew Scriptures, Old Testament is what Peter was referring to when he said we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. 2 Peter 1.19 What word was he talking about? The Hebrew Scriptures. Now later I think legitimately and look, please don't misunderstand me I am not saying the Older Testament trumps the New Testament. Not at all. What I'm saying is it's all God's inspired word. And the time we spend really putting effort and energy into understanding the Hebrew Scriptures is huge today. Just wait. Just wait till. You know, Lord willing, if we get to the New Testament before He comes, just wait till we get there. And what you're going to see with the background and the understanding and the knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures behind you, it will be a completely different thing. It will be eye-opening. It will be like walking out into the bright light of dawn after a dark night. But if we say, no, the Hebrew Scriptures are just... I mean, there are Christians today who question the value of the law and the testimony. Yes, we're saved by grace. I'm not bound by the law, but I sure can learn from it. Mm -hmm. And the righteousness that I am to seek along with the kingdom is declared in the law. And it's good stuff. And it is worth your time and your effort. Let me give you the words of Jesus on this. You may be familiar with this particular verse, John 5.39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. What was he talking about? The Hebrew Scriptures. Again, the New Testament not yet being written. These Scriptures testify of me. They're all about me. But listen to what he says a little further down in John chapter 5. Verse 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So, wow, the teachings of Moses are a good place to start if you want to know Jesus. He says in verse 47, if you do not believe his writings, that is the writings of Moses, how will you believe my words? I'm just... What I'm getting to is this. As you go to the law and to the testimony, Christ dawns on you. That's how it works. And I truly know Jesus better than I have ever known Him in my life. The last eight years of walking through the Hebrew Scriptures has been illuminating for me. In ways that I did not expect. I just thought we were going to do Bible study through the Bible. I had kind of a goal set for myself to teach through the Hebrew Scriptures. And I have been more enlightened about the things of the Holy Spirit, more enlightened about the activity and the person and and the coming, both the first coming and the second coming of Jesus and how He interacts with us today through the Old Testament than I ever imagined. He wants to illuminate us. Walk according to the entire Word of God and you will have illumination. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That was Israel's problem. That's why they were walking in the darkness. They were ignoring their own scriptures. But read on. Verse 21, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry... They will be enraged and curse their King and their God as they face upward. A picture of rebellion. It's not an embarrassment or our sin. Oh, I don't want God to know it. It's looking right up at God and being angry with Him, which is where the world is headed, even today. Then they will look to the earth. <laughs> If I had another hour, I would talk about the application of that to our environmentally conscious world today. Notice, notice this: it says first they will look upward in rebellion, then they will look to the earth. There's something I believe that precedes a love of the planet, which is a greater love even than human beings, and that is a rebellion in the face of God. They will look to the earth. And behold, here's what they're going to find, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Merry Christmas. (laughs) That's where we end the chapter in the English. But I was so gratified to discover that that's not where the chapter ends in the Hebrew text. In the Hebrew text, the chapter actually goes on to verse 23, which we see as verse 1 of chapter 9, but it's verse 23 of chapter 8 for the Hebrews. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which is the northern Galilee, with contempt. But later on, He shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan... Galilee of the Gentiles. Wow. That's where the dawning begins. In Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where the dawn pierces the darkness. In Galilee of the Gentiles. I think you know why. That's where Jesus began to walk in His public ministry. And the people, verse 2 of chapter 9 tells us, that walked in darkness. Have seen a great light. We're going to talk about that and a lot more on Saturday night, Christmas Eve. You're all invited to be back. Let's pray. Father, bring us out of darkness in this culture, in this age, in this world in which we live. May we shine like stars of the universe. May we have the dawn of your word. May we see things clearly and not in shadow. May we have a true understanding, Father. And not oppressive darkness. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and there are some who come to mind right now who are dealing with issues of pain and issues of distress and issues of sorrow and worry and despair. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, dawn on them. May we walk in Your light even if it means there is suffering or pain for a short time now. May we see beyond to the light of the glory of eternity with You. May we live in the dawn. Father, bless Your people Israel. There is a great darkness in the land right now. Bless Your people Israel that they might see the light of Mashiach, of Emmanuel, that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that the Messianic movement that is gaining steam in Israel would continue to do so. And that before You call the church home, there will be many Jewish people part of that calling home, part of the church. But above all things, I pray, Lord Jesus, be glorified, be honored, And have Your way in this world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, Amen.